Thank you for tuning in to Trinity Baptist Temple's podcast. I'm Pastor Kyle Dinsmore, and I pray today's sermon is a blessing to you as you continue to seek the Lord and follow His will for your life. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact us. God bless you. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Luke chapter 16. And uh, we've been on a journey for quite a while now. A journey with Jesus is what we're calling it. Traveling through the book of Luke. And again, we find ourselves in chapter 16. Last week, uh, we saw three important truths again. We're just breaking them down like that. Sometimes we'll have two uh, uh, important things that stand out. But last week, three again. Uh, number one was man's way is in, oppositions to, is in opposition to God's way. So when we look at what man's way is, it's, it's all about works, it's about himself, it's about uh, self-centeredness, um, and all those ways are contrary to God's ways, because God's way is all his way. It's all about God, it's all about his glory, it's all about what he's done, not what man. Number two was man's work is insufficient for God, and that kind of played on that. There's nothing that we could ever do to be good enough for God. There's nothing in a sinful state that we could ever do that could please a sinless, holy God. That's why Jesus came, paid the price, opened the door for us to have a relationship through His grace, and by His righteousness alone can we approach the throne of, uh, of grace. And then number three was, marriage's worth is indisputable to God. Today in our society, again, I just read another article, um, no, I'm sorry, it's in a book I'm reading, and uh, they, uh, they were talking about, still, uh, 50% of marriages will end in divorce at, at the end. Um, and that's still just a sad statistic. Half of the people that get married are going to be divorced. And uh, again, that's not what God's intention was. Uh, God's intention was that there would be one man and one woman for the rest of their lives. And we understand that things happen. Uh, most of the time what happens is sin gets involved uh, in, in some way or the other. And it, and it gets in there, and it just begins to destroy little by little, sometimes all at once. Uh, but get, again, God's will, God's design, because it's indisputable. It's what he created. It's what he designed, is that one man and one woman would be together for the rest of their lives when they're married. And so we see these points, and in some regards, it was a very sensitive thing. It was a very sensitive topic uh, because of the, as like I said, half of, half of marriage is into divorce still today. Um, and, and so it's a sensitive thing, and, and, and sometimes, especially when it's not one person's particular fault uh, that the marriage comes to an end, it's, it's a very difficult uh, thing to, to go through. But we, we come to another very touchy subject for many today, and uh, I love the Lord. He just continues to teach us and tell us the way it is, and uh, we have to be the ones that are not about us, just yielded to Him. And so we come to this place, this doctrine, this teaching, that has been denied by so many people. Today, it's been disputed. It's disagreed upon even with you know, so-called teachers or pe uh, preachers today. Um, and sadly, because of this, it's led to grave deceptions and misconceptions. Therefore, many have lost the impact of the truth of this teaching, the truth of this doctrine. And what I'm talking about is the doctrine of hell. Again, people don't like it. People don't want to talk about it. People want to think about them or somebody else they love going to a place that's eternal, that is tormenting, that is, that is miserable, that there's no hope, there's no salvation there, there's no reprieve, there's nothing. Uh, we don't like to think that way in our, in our lives. And so people try to explain it away. They try to spin it a different way. But Jesus 
doesn't do that. Jesus is just going to tell us how it is, the way things are, and he's going to do so in the form of another story. He's already talked about riches, how to steward even unrighteous money that we may get in this world, the money of this world. He's rebuked the Pharisees for the hypocrisy, telling people what to do and yet not doing it themselves. Their love of money, he's rebuked. Their extortion of people and money, their disregard of God's law, he's rebuked them for all that, even, desp even despite the fact that they claimed that they were the righteous people of the day. He's corrected them for exalting themselves among men. He's corrected them in their self-righteous, self-centered, religious lifestyles. He's corrected them for all these things. And now he's going to tell a story that's both informative for us, very informative, but also indicting. It's indicting for those who are living like the Pharisees even today. What happens to us when we die? What goes on? That moment that our eyes close in this world, that we take our last breath, that our spirit leaves this earthly body, what happens? And so again, Jesus is going to tell us what happens. But for those people who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ, maybe people who are living like the Pharisees were at that point in time, thinking that they do have enough time, thinking that they, they have it right in their life. I'm, I seem to be good. Everything's going good in my life. I've got money. I've got things. I've got friends. I've got family. I've got all these things, and so I, I think I've got things right. They think maybe they can get it straight later. I'll get my situation with God uh, straight later. Maybe they're completely focused on worldly riches and they think that that's most important in this world. As long as I have money, I can get by. Maybe they, like many people then, many people now again, still think that success in the world's eyes equates to the good life. Well, as long as I'm successful, I've, I've got all these things, then I'm living the good life. And so Jesus is going to correct this. And we're going to, again, see, see what he has to say. He's going to tell the story. Uh, we'll get the teaching. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, thank you so much for this time again. Thank you for uh, what we have experienced. Lord, we thank you for the music. We thank you for the opportunities to give. Uh, Lord, you deserve everything. You deserve our, our, our time, our talent, our treasure. You deserve everything. God, you, you came and paid the price and purchased our lives with the blood of your precious son. And so, God, we are so thankful and so, so fortunate, God, and so blessed that we can be here in your name, gathered as your people to worship you. And, Lord, not only that, to hear from your word, uh, to be gathered in unity around your word, wanting to, to, to do what you want. And, God, if there's any of us here that are uh, at odds with that, Lord, we don't, we're not ready to do what you want us to do. We don't, maybe we're in a, in a wrong state in our life. I pray that you would soften those hearts, God, that you would... Uh, speak to those that need to hear you. Lord, we all need to hear you, but uh, maybe those that are struggling. And Lord, even more than that, those that maybe never have given their life to you. They've never uh, surrendered all. They've never put their faith in Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, knowing that he alone can save. Lord, move in the heart, hearts of those people. Just have your way, God. Use me as a vessel to speak what needs to be spoken. And uh, that way you can get the glory from it all, God. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 is where we pick up. Again, Jesus had already uh, given some instruction, corrected in so many different ways. And so he, he tells a story. He says there's a certain rich man 
which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, so, first off, this, I want to say, this is likely a true story. Unlike the other parables that Jesus has told, this story contains the name of a real man. Uh, this is not 100% because the meaning of the man's name could possibly uh, give us an indication that Jesus was trying to teach this over, overarching point, this important point that we're going to see. But we have reason to believe that this event actually happened. As God, Jesus would know what's going on in every man's life and also what happens after every man's life. And so it's very, very possible, very likely that this was a true story. We have two people. Very clearly, we have a rich man and we have a beggar. The beggar was given the name Lazarus. And I want you to notice that he was the one that was named. It wasn't the rich man that he said, hey, you'll know this guy. You'll know blank. You'll know Bob, you'll know Jim, you'll know whoever, you know, uh, he didn't say that. He said the rich man and then this beggar whose name was Lazarus. His name in the Greek is the form of the Hebrew word Eleazar, which means God is helper. Think about that. The beggar who was laid at the rich man's gate, who was full of sores, who had to beg for just the crumbs from the rich man's table, his name was God is helper. I think that somebody could get bitter at that in their life, especially with, again, American culture mentality. How is God my helper? I don't have any way to put myself at a rich man's gate. I've got to be put there. I'm sick. I've got sores all over myself. I have no way to make money. I have to beg for crumbs from, from this guy's table. The dogs come and lick my sores every day. How is God my helper? Again, it, it's hard with, a, with a, maybe a temporal or uh, a self-centered mindset to understand how this would make sense. But again, we see two very different lives, two very different people, two very different lives. Look at it again, the rich man. He had a home. He had clothes. And not only did he have clothes, but his clothes, the Bible says, are described as purple and fine linen. They were, they were dipped in, 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 in purple, which represented uh, wealth. He rejoiced. And not only that, he feasted every single day. I want to say this. You go to a third world country and you see, you look at the way that we live our lives, and that's exactly how that third world sees us. Clothed, have homes, feasting every single day. And then the beggar, the other person, the other life he was living. No home of his own on earth. Had to be laid at the rich man's gate. Couldn't walk there, couldn't drive there. He had to be laid there. Couldn't get there himself. Couldn't provide for himself. His health was bad. And he was so low on this earth that he was just asking for the crumbs from that rich man's table. The leftovers. The dogs. Because he couldn't move, because he couldn't fend him off, because he couldn't do anything for himself, the dogs would come and lick his open wounds, and he couldn't do anything about it. From the standard of this world's viewpoint, we look at these two lives, and the rich man had the good life. The rich man was living the good life. That's what everybody wants to live, is that rich man's life. Again, he's got everything he needs. He's got everything he wants. He's got his clothes, his house, his friends, his parties, his food. 
He's got everything. And the world says, that's what you need. That's what you need to strive for. That's what is, that's the goal. That's the good life is what he's living. And Lazarus, on the other hand, has the miserable life. He's the one that nobody wants to be like. Nobody wants to live a life that Lazarus is living. I mean, can you wrap your mind around that and try to imagine living a life like that every single day? Not just one day, not just one week, not just one year. Every single day of your life, no, no changes. This is just the way it is. You're late at someone's gate, hoping that someone gives you food, trying to keep the dogs off you, trying to keep the infection out of your sores. Nobody around, no friends Maybe except for the few that laid him at his gate. Maybe it was family that did that. What a miserable life by this world's viewpoint. Miserable. Now, just share this. And I was looking at those pastors that we met down in Nicaragua and I saw what they were dealing with and how they did it. And I've seen it before. But they were serving faithfully without a fraction of the resources that I or other pastors serve with. And they were continuing to do it. I sat there on a Tuesday night and shared with a, a group of about 10 pastors and, and shared just an encourage, some encouraging words to them. And then they asked me a bunch of questions and I answered those questions. And I walked away saying, you know what? Everything's different, but everything's the same. They deal with some of the same exact problems that I deal with. They were asking those questions. What are, what are your greatest struggles? What are, your, what are the greatest difficulties in ministry as a pastor? What, what are your greatest things? What, are, what is this? What is that? And they were having a conversation with me, and we were having a conversation, and it was the same exact thing, just in a different way. And yet those guys are doing it with way less opportunity, way less resources in man's eyes. And they were an encouragement. And some would say, man, that's what you need to strive for. You need to strive to be an American pastor where you got all these things. You know, somebody said, well, that's what you need to strive for. You need to strive to be this at your job or this in your, your, your community. But regardless of what these two men had or didn't have, and regardless of what we have or don't have, point number one is this. Our temporal riches don't give value to our soul. Our temporal riches don't give value to our soul. Because again, when man looks at these two circumstances, these two lives, somebody would think the rich man's more important. Somebody would think that the rich man, that's who maybe they want to fellowship with. That's who they want to hang out with. That's who they want to rub elbows with. That's who they want to be like, is this rich man. And we saw this the week before last. I shared this with our group in Nicaragua the last night we were there. And sitting in, in, in a hotel room, we were sharing. Whether it's third world or whether it's first world, every soul is a soul that Christ died for. Every soul. Whether they're on the street, whether they're laid at someone's gate, whether they're faring sumptuously every day, every soul is a soul that Christ came to die for. The Bible tells us that we're not to be laboring to be rich in this world. So the value of our soul is not found or substantiated by what temporal possessions we have or what we don't have. So let me say that again. What we have or what we don't have doesn't bring more value to our life, more value to our soul, 
to God. It doesn't, just because, well, I can't be useful in, in my circumstances. That's absolutely a lie of the devil. The value of your soul, the value of my soul, the value of every soul is found in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our transgressions. Every single soul. Every single one. Temporal riches or the lack thereof. A current low state or a high state of being doesn't prove God's love or care. And I want you to remember that. Having a low state, low, well, I don't have no money right now. It seems like every week we're sick. It seems like every time I turn around, there's a problem. My life right now is the lowest it's ever been. Maybe you look across the room and that person, they're never sick. They're always seeming like that they, their life is good. There's nothing wrong with their life. Everything is wonderful. That's what I want in my life. Just because you're going through a low time or just because you're at a high state doesn't prove or disprove God's love or care for you. God is good, period. And he's good to them that trust him. In the good times and in the bad times. Psalms chapter 115 says this in verse 11. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. It goes on, the Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel and bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. You're blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. So just because you may be struggling now in circumstances, maybe you're at the very bottom of your life. You say, I I've never been lower than I am right now. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that God isn't there. It doesn't mean that because others aren't where you are, that you don't have value. God's not hearing my prayers. My circumstances aren't changing. I've been in this valley for so long. Maybe God doesn't care. Don't believe that. So why should I not believe that? Look at this beggar. Look at this beggar's life. Look at him. It's hard to beat this miserable condition. It's hard to beat that low. I, I don't know where you're at right now, and I, I know that there are some in here that are really, really low. They're really, really struggling, whether it's your health or your marriage or your kids or your job or finance or whatever. I know there's a lot of people in here with a lot of things, and you're really low, and it's, and it's a struggle for you. And I'm not trying to take away from that at all because it's real. I understand that. But I want you to consider this man's life. And I don't know of anybody in this room that's where he was. I don't know anybody like that. Because everybody's here. Nobody's having to be laid at a rich man's gate. Nobody's, nobody's having to have, have, try to fend off the dogs looking their swords. Nobody's having to beg for food from that rich man. Nobody's in that condition. You may be going through difficult, but this man's condition was miserable. Miserable by human standards. Yet, his life and his story is still impacting us thousands years later. So when we look at the current circumstances of our life and we say, man, there's no point in me going through all this. There's no, there's no reason for me to be dealing with this. I mean, it makes no sense to me at all. 
I don't understand why I have to be the one that has to struggle like this. I don't understand why my marriage has to be the, I don't understand why we're always being tested and pressed and pushed and, and always feeling like we're under the, the heavy weight of something. Why do we have to be the ones? Again, we don't hear that in this story. Now, we understand the Bible's silent about certain things. Maybe the, rich, maybe the beggar did gripe and complain, but we don't know that, so we can't believe that. We just know that he was there, and this was his life. And I get it. He says, so you're saying maybe what I'm going through right now is about somebody else? You're saying that, that what our circumstances that we're dealing with right now, it may not have a benefit to me at the end of my life here? You're, you're, tell, you're trying to tell me that? I get it. We live in a self-centered culture with a flesh nature that thrives in that self-centered culture. So for us to say that our suffering and our low estate may mean something for somebody else, even down the road, if we have the right heart, the right spirit to say that, it may be difficult for us to, to do that, maybe against our will. But I want to say, that's what we should be striving for. God, I may not have an answer. I, I may never know the answer. I may not ever understand why I'm the one going through this. I've tried to serve you with my life. I've tried to serve you with my time, my talent, my treasure. I've tried to keep a sincere heart, a, a genuine life. I've tried to be faithful to you. I've tried to do everything I could do in my life. And it seems like everything goes wrong. Everything is difficult. Everything is hard. Strive to maintain that sincere heart. Don't look at your circumstances and say, God doesn't care about me. God doesn't value me. God cares about them more than me. They're not having it as hard as I have it. And so I must be doing something. If your heart is sincere and your heart is right, and you're doing everything that I just said, you have to understand God's got a greater, more eternal purpose than you may see or ever understand. And for that to matter to you, you've got to keep a sincere heart. But when you don't keep a sincere heart, when you don't care about the, the things of God, when your heart gets hardened, when you get to a cold, backslidden state, what you begin to do is say, I don't care who benefits from my circumstances. I just want them to change. I don't care who God uses, uh, who, how God uses my life to touch somebody else down the road. If that's what he wants to do through this, I could care less because I want this to end. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of this feeling. I'm sick of these circumstances. I'm sick of always having these problems. It's the hard heart. It's the callous heart. It's the backslidden heart that says that. Because the Bible calls us to be a living sacrifice. It's amazing how the Lord works. Brother Jeffrey was sharing 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Didn't see how that was going to pan out in this message, but God put the same exact verse on my heart for this message in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, for which cause we faint not, the cause of Christ, for, uh, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it works for us far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And he says this in verse 18, so while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, because the things that are seen are a temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 says this, not that I speak in respect of want. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm needing something right now, Paul says, because I've learned, this is what I've learned, in whatsoever state I am, to be content in that state. To be content in that state, 
And he expounds on that. He says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed by God both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The reason why is that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can be in a prison, a Roman prison cell, as Paul was in that moment as he was pinning this letter and say, I know how to deal with this. I know how to, to, to stand before kings and stand in palaces and, 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 and abound and, and, and have people uh, look at me and praise me. And I don't know how, to pe- uh, how it feels for people to stone me and, and, and to want to wanna kill me and imprison me. But through it all, I've learned. It's okay. God's got me. I can make it through this with his strength alone. I want to encourage you, don't, don't seek to have your hope Don't seek to have your trust, your confidence in God bolstered by your current circumstances. Don't don't seek to have your confidence or your trust or your your hope renewed in God by your current financial situation or by your situation in your health. Don't seek those things. You say, man, I'm okay serving God as long as everything's good financially. Don't seek that because the bottom can fall out at any time. Don't, don't see, well, I, I feel really good in my health for the first time in a long time. I feel God, I feel like I can serve God. I can, I can start doing this. I understand there's limitations to, our health, to, to what we can do with our health sometimes. But I'm talking about the difference between feeling good and feeling bad. And still being able to do something. Seek the Lord. Hope in Him. Trust in Him. Have confidence in Him because of who He is. And what He's done for your eternity. Not only that, don't seek him only when you need him to fix something. Don't seek God when, he, when you need him to fix your marriage or when you need to fix your health or your job or, or, or your, 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 your emotions or, or whatever. Don't seek God only when you need him to heal you or help you. Seek him at all times. And on the flip side, don't rave about God. Don't, don't sing his praises to the top of your lungs only when things are great. Praise Him at all times because He's worthy of all of our praise at all times. It's such an interesting dynamic how we live our lives sometimes or how we respond to God's grace, how we live in fellowship and non-fellowship with God because there's some people that when things are good, they run to God and they're on the mountaintop. They're singing praises. They're serving. Things are wonderful and so they're doing that. But on the flip side, there's some people, once everything gets good in their life, their health, their money, their family, everything, their relationships, everything's good, they don't need God. And, and they just kind of in and out whenever they want to be and serving whenever they want to serve because everything's good. They don't really have a desperation for God. It's a two-sided coin. But on the flip side, it happens the same exact way. There's people who when everything is wrong, everything is bad, every, nothing is good, they're desperate for God and so they run to God. They're always faithful. They're always praising. They're always seeking because they're desperate for God to fix their circumstances. And then on the flip side, there's those who go through those negative circumstances. When things get bad, they were trying to do everything good, but things get bad. And they pull away. I just don't feel like going. I just don't feel like serving. I just don't feel like doing. It's interesting the way that different people respond. I want to ask you, how does it feel when someone only talks to you when they want to use you? when they want to ask help from you. 
It doesn't feel good. Let's not do that to God. Let's not do that to God. This world is simply a mission field for us. It's a field of harvest. Jesus said the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are, fl- are few. A place of limited time, yet with all the spiritual resources needed to accomplish the one true God's desire for all, which in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says this, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. That's why we're here. That's what we're here for. Lazarus evidently didn't allow his circumstances to determine his trust in God. Evidently, no matter how bad his life was, he still had trust in God. And that leads us to point number two. Our current circumstances can't determine our trust in God. Our current circumstances can't determine our trust in God. Whether you're on the mountaintop or whether you're in your valley, whether you're in, your, in, in the house faring sumptuously every day, or whether you're laid at the gate full of sores begging for food, our circumstances can't determine our trust in God or level of trust in God. Man, things are really good. I, I can trust God for anything. I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm on cloud nine. I feel like God could, could, could heal this and deliver that. Yeah, let's pray about that. Again, maybe it's on the flip side. Everything's wonderful. I, I don't really think I need God for anything. We can't do that. Our current circumstances can't determine our trust for God. Look on to verse 22, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. And look at this next statement. The rich man also died. The rich man also died. It's going to happen. It's going to happen to the, to the, to the beggar and, and the rich man. It's going to ha- happen to the king and the pauper. Death is coming. Hebrews chapter 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. It's coming. Rich man died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. Being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So the rich man made a mistake, an eternally grave mistake. He was consumed with the pleasures of this temporal world. His current circumstances, all of his friends, all of his clothes, all of his money, all of his food and partying, all of his current circumstances was preaching to him. What was it preaching to him? His circumstances were telling him every day, you don't need God. That's what his circumstances were saying. You're good. You're living the good life. Why do you need to call on God? Why do you need to trust God? I mean, take a step back and look at your life. Who wouldn't want to be you? Who wouldn't want to live the life you're living? What do you need God for? You made it. You got there. You have it all. And that was his mistake. His eternally grave mistake was that he listened to those circumstances that was telling him, you're fine, you're fine. You got everything this world needs to offer, and that's what it's all about. Because you're the one that's got to close your eyes at night, open them in the morning, and go from day to day and live in this life. And why wouldn't you want to have the best of this world if you could? And he listened. But on the other hand, Lazarus, he could have looked at his circumstances. 
Lazarus could have laid there maybe on year 30. I don't know that he was dealing with this. He could have laid there and, and, and at some point said, if God is real, why won't he fix this circumstance? If God is real, why won't he change my life? Why won't he fix my life? If God is real, why don't he just help me get up off this ground and be able to walk myself? If God is real, why don't he stop making me have to beg for food every day? He could have done that. But he didn't. He didn't make that. He didn't listen to his circumstances. He didn't look at his circumstances and listen to them and say, you know what? That's right. If God is good and God is real, and if he's really God and all-powerful and God can do anything, and if he really cares for me, he should change my circumstances. But he didn't. It's obvious that Lazarus trusted God regardless of how good or bad his life was on this earth. It's obvious that he, he looked at those circumstances and, and, and he, he had heard about the goodness of God, the love of God, the provision of God. It's obvious that those things captured the gospel captured his heart, and he trusted God regardless of how good or bad his life was right now. His hope in God took him beyond this life, trusting that there was another life to come, this eternal life, the, the, the life that every single one of us was destined from the very beginning in the garden to live with God in right fellowship for, for eternity. He believed that. He trusted that. And obviously, he made his decision and committed his life to the Lord. See, he knew his current state wasn't his end state. And I, I want you to write that down. I want you to write that down. Your current state is not your end state. Things may be wonderful right now. No, they may change. This, this is not your end state. You may be really di dealing with difficult circumstances. No, this is not your end state. Because one day, just as the rich man did and just as Lazarus did, Unless the Lord returns first, we too will have this said about our life. And Kyle died. That's going to be the story of all of our lives. It's going to happen. Not only that, but here in these verses, again, as I said in the beginning, we see what happens to us after death. For Lazarus and for those of us who have put our, our, our absolute confidence and placed our confidence in Jesus Christ, he was and we are, as the people of God, carried to the comfort of the presence of God. You have to know that this was before the death of Christ. And so we see a, a little bit different circumstance. But Scripture tells us now in Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're taken from the, from, to the comfort, to the presence of God immediately after death. That's for those who have trusted Christ. On the other hand, those who don't put their trust in the Lord, those who don't put their confidence, their absolute, complete life in the Lord, we're told that they immediately are in torments in hell. There's, there's no in-between. Billy Sunday once said this, God keeps no halfway house. It's either heaven or hell for you and me. That's it. 
Again, as I said in the beginning, it's a, it's a debatable, it's, a, uh, not, it's not a debatable topic, but it's debated among men today. It's disagreed upon. People don't like it because we don't want to, in our minds, we look at our loved ones and we look at people that are living good lives and, and they seem to be genuine people. And, and no, they may not have given their trust to, to the Lord. Maybe they've not surrendered their life to Him. But how in the world can they live this life and, and be such good people? I mean, they live in a good neighborhood. They keep a good home. They're, they're nice to their neighbors. They, they pay their bills. They go to their jobs. They're just good people. How in the world can they leave this life in an instant Go from living that good life to torments in hell. We all know that our standard of good is different from God's. Because as good as someone can live in this world, as we saw last week, the Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the reason why is because we're in a sin state. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there's none righteous, no, not one. That every single one of us is a sinner. And here's how it happens. If we ever tell one lie, we have now offended the law of God. The Bible says that sin is the transgression of the law in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. So if we've ever told a lie, if we've ever used God's name in vain, not talking directly to God, but as a, as a word of disgust, if we've ever stolen something or borrowed it and not given it back, if we've ever looked on someone with lust and they weren't our spouse, we committed adultery already in our heart. If we've ever put anything before the Lord, we've made a God before Him. And so as good in man's eyes as someone might be, to holy God, every single one of us have offended His righteous law. And so every single one of us is a sinner. And so when someone dies, and they lived that good moral life to man, but they didn't trust Jesus to wash their sins, to forgive them of their sins, to cover them in his righteousness, that when that day comes and they stand before the Lord, that God sees the righteousness of Christ on them. Then yes, they will die. And they will open their eyes in a hell that is a place of torment. And what is it like? What is it like there? Jesus explains, he cried and said, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Aren't the circumstances absolutely, ironically turned? Because it was Lazarus having to be laid at his gate, hoping that the rich man would have enough left from the day's party that he could be fed from a crumb from that table hoping the rich man would, would, would be able to to bless him in that way because he had extra and the scraps would be given to him maybe he'd have to fight the dogs that were looking his source off from those scraps and now in the eternal state in the eternal realm it's the rich man begging abraham let lazarus he knew his name isn't that interesting as he knew his name it's interesting that he knew his name, that at some point in time he didn't walk outside of his gate and said, Lazarus, come in with us. We've got plenty of food. We'll have leftovers like we do every time. You can come eat with us at our table. You can wear one of my, my coats. You can use my bath and clean yourself. Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll get some of my servants to take care of your wounds. Lazarus, come, come in and dine with us. 
It's interesting, at this point in time, he's begging that Lazarus knew him by name. But simply just dip his water in, in water. Be able to come and he didn't ask for a gallon of water, a, 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 a cup of water. Just the tip of his finger dipped in water. I've never been that thirsty before. I've been thirsty, real thirsty. And praise God, I've been able to, most of the time, drink what I wanted. But I've never been so desperate that I felt like if I could just get a drip of water, it would be some type of relief from the torment I'm in. And he says that. Because I'm tormented in this flame. I'm tormented in this flame. That's not figurative. That was real. And it is real. But listen to the response. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. You made your life on earth your heaven. That's what you live for. And you got it. And Lazarus, he had to deal with the evil life, the bad life. But now he's comforted and you're tormented. Not only that, not only did y'all make your choices based on your life, based on your trust in God, not only that, See, God has put this great gulf between us so that they which would pass from here to there, they can't. Neither can you pass to us that would come from there. Look as he goes on, though. It doesn't end there. It's not just the physical torment. It's not just the, 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 the pain that he's in, just desiring some help, some relief, some cooling of his tongue. He says, okay, then I pray thee, Father, that thou would send him. If, if, if Lazarus can't come to me because it's a great gulf and we can't go back and forth, there's no relief I can get physically, then please send him back to my father's house because I have five brothers that he can tell them. He can testify unto them lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, look, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God, just like you had the word of God. Just like you could hear for yourself and decide to trust God or not trust God. They have the same opportunity as you had, as Lazarus had. So let them hear them. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody went back from the dead, they would repent. Look, they're not going to believe him. They're, they're, I mean, they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets. It's in a book. They're not going to believe. But if they saw somebody who they knew died, they saw was placed in that, that, that tomb, and they saw this person alive again, and, and, and they knew that he had died, truly died, and they came back and they said, listen, you better trust God or you're going to spend eternity in torment. Let them hear them because they'll repent. And listen to what this, the response was. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. See, the rich man, some things about hell. He was in torment. He could see. He could hear. He cried out for mercy for, and no relief. He desired water to cool his tongue. He had a physical need that couldn't be met. He could remember his former life on this earth. He was separated from hope and from help permanently. He cared for his family that was still living on earth. 
He still had emotions. But he couldn't have his desires granted. See, we see the opportunity to reach man with the truth of God's word today, with the gospel. And it only exists on earth before death. When life on earth is over, the opportunity is gone. Blaise Pascal said this, between us and, and heaven or hell, there's only one life. Listen to this, which is the frailest thing in the world. But we don't, we don't look at it like that. We don't live like that. We don't approach life like that. But number three is this, as I get ready to close, it says our, uh, our opportunity for salvation is now, and we must be urgent about it. Man's opportunity for salvation now is now, and we must be urgent about it. For man to be saved, for, for anybody to be saved, for the saved to share salvation, we have to realize now is our only opportunity. Now is the day of salvation. That's it. The rich man thought that, that if his family saw someone come back from the dead, that's when they would listen, that's when they would get saved, and that's how they could miss the torment that he was in. But Christ was not only teaching that, that in this general sense to his followers, this is the truth, but it was also in indicting of the religious leaders of that day and indicting of, of religion today. See, they were consumed with their own lives and religion, supposing that they were good with God, but they weren't. They would find out that they were eternally wrong too. They were ignorant to the scriptures that existed already. And as Christ corrected their theology, they rejected him even more. This was revealing of a lack of trust they had in him. I, I read something recently, I think it was this week, something to this effect. It said, people don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear something that constantly affirms what they believe is truth. Jesus said in John 17, verse 7, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And people don't like that. They don't want to hear that even today. Christ would even rise from the dead, and many would still reject that message. And so if someone rejects the truth of God, God's word, if someone rejects the gospel, the good news that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, went to a cross to bear the burden took on the sin of the world, died for the sin of the world, your, your sin and my sin. He was buried in a grave or in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again victorious. If someone rejects that, then they've set their course to the same course of this rich man in the story. Tormented permanently, separated permanently from comfort, from hope, from help, helpless to reach the others that are still alive. That's why the gospel, the good news, is so good. It's our only hope to experience what Lazarus did and is experiencing even now as the musicians come. Aging. We're all aging. We're all going to that point of this life ending. And with this life being the only thing that separates us from the eternal realm, with it, with it being so fragile, with each one of our lives being so fragile, we who are saved, 
who have trusted Jesus alone for salvation must, 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 must share the opportunity of salvation with others with urgency. I'll end with what Charles Finney said. He says, when sinners are careless and ignorant and sinking into hell unconcerned, listen, it's time the church should bestir themselves, should arouse themselves and awaken themselves to, to action. That's what bestir means. It is as much the duty of the church to awake as it is for the firemen to awake when a fire breaks out in the night in a great city. Let's remember these three points this morning. Have you truly taken the opportunity? Have you truly taken the open door? Jesus Christ, giving you the opportunity now to be saved. Have you taken that opportunity? If not, today is the day of salvation. Don't pass it by. Don't be as the rich man and say, you know what? I think I'm good. I'll, if not, I'll deal with it later. Don't do that. Because your life will consume you and the day will come and it will be too late. Don't wait. Run, urgently run to Christ today. Let him save you. To give you that eternal home. If you've already done that, if you're like me, then something's got to change in our life. We, we need to urgently do everything we can, everything, to get this opportunity, listen, to miss hell to those who need it, to those in darkness. We, we must. We've got to do that before it's eternally too late for them. Because just as we saw with the rich man, there's no other chance after that. It may be a loved one. It may be a friend. It may be a neighbor. It may be a stranger you just run into. We've got to tell them before it's eternally too late. Because God forbid they open their eyes in that torment and they say, I knew Christians everywhere in my life. No one ever told me. No one ever warned me. No one ever said anything to me about hell. No one. God forbid. I don't want to stand before God. Even though I know I'm going to be in eternity with him forever, I still don't want to give an account for that. That I had it and I didn't share it. Let's take the opportunity while we have it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this, this message. Thank you for this challenge, this reminder. God, help us never let our circumstances preach to us and us trust them more than you. Help us never to miss an opportunity to share the gospel. God, help us to take this message this morning and apply it in our lives. Speak now, work now, Lord. I pray that we would respond rightly in this invitation. In Jesus' name.